0: If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Alison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more. Wherever you get your podcast, thank you so much for listening. Later on,
2: Lizzie, do you want to do the intro for the podcast? Yeah,
1: yes, it's what. It is uh, (laughs) Hi, (laughs) welcome to Basic Folk with Cindy Howes and Lizzie No. We have honest conversations with folk musicians.
2: Nailed it. Good work. I
1: I got very nervous, but
2: (laughs) it turns out I had the power all along. So Lizzie, how are you doing? You're playing shows again. Yes. I, for those who can't see on video, I have a wild look in my eye because I'm busy for the first time in two years. I'm seeing like all these musicians... Posting about their tour dates, it's gotta be so hard to make that transition. It's very hard.
1: It's very good. And that's what's so strange about it. I'm finding myself really needing to journal more because the feelings are complex. This is what I've been working towards. This is what I've been waiting for. This is what I want to do with my life. And finally, I get to do it after a very unfortunate pause. But then you're sort of like mired in details about rental cars and hotels and rehearsal schedules and who's bringing what gear. And you're just like inundated with a bunch of stuff.
2: I was hanging out with Issa Burke from Lula Wilds the other night. The greatest. I'm such a big fan. She was like, my touring muscles have completely atrophied, Mm -hmm. except that she said there's one thing that remains and that she is able to pack, like, very, very efficiently and on a dime, it sounds like. I feel
1: like I'm the same way. Like, I can pack a suitcase or a car trunk or a mini fridge, like, to the maximum capacity. People are asking me, like, okay, what time are we getting to X location? And I'm finding myself feeling, like, offended. Like, why should I know what time we're getting? Right. Oh, actually, I it is my job
2: to know. So, you have some tour dates posted now. Um, I see that you're actually coming pretty close to Pittsburgh. You're going to be in August, you'll be in Bethlehem, PA, which is not close to Pittsburgh. Yes, for Music Fest. What is that? Music Fest is
1: a a really great festival that I've known about for a while, and I'm excited to finally play. I think
2: the Preservation Hall Jazz Band is headlining the day I'm there. I'm going to try to come out to your Cleveland show because that's like (gasps) an hour and a half from Pittsburgh. Oh my gosh, that would be great! OK, so before we get into our interview for today, it's Lizzie's mm-hmm. second basic folk interview with Kishibashi. Pretty pumped to that. I wanted to ask you some questions about um, being on the road. OK. Uh, I just took a really long drive from my parents' house in Walpole, Massachusetts to Pittsburgh. It was nine hours long. Woof. And I was really excited because I found that function in Spotify where you can queue things up. You know, and I just queued up like 20 podcasts.
1: I have only just discovered the cue function this past week.
2: Right? It's life-changing. No one told me. The other (laughs) thing that I have just discovered actually was that there's a button on my steering wheel that is sort of like if you're listening to a CD, you can like hit the button and it skips to the next track. But that also translates to podcasts where you can like fast forward. Cindy, you're living in the future. I know. Listen, okay. So it's not just questions about being on the road. It's tips because I am a road dog, clearly. Um, So Lizzie, what do you listen to when you're on the road? That is a great question. It's always evolving, of course, but I like to keep a
1: steady diet of music I'm really comfortable with, music I don't know, and podcasts. So like late at night, if I'm trying to stay awake, I need to hear someone talking. I can't listen to music. I have to like be hearing something narrative. So I usually listen to Last Podcast on the Left or My Brother, My Brother and Me. Last Podcast on the Left is all about like serial killers and cults. And My Brother, My Brother and Me is just three delightful brothers who are comedians, who are from West Virginia, and they give advice. So those are my favorite podcasts. Also, Stradio Lab. I don't know if you know Stradio Lab. It's two comedians analyzing straight culture, which is <laughs> so funny. Shout out to my friend George Severus for that. So then I like to listen to like what I consider great road trip music, which is like Gillian Welch,
2: Lyle Lovett, The War on Drugs... How many times do you listen to that Tom Cochran song, Life is a Highway?
1: (laughs) I do not listen to Life is a Highway, but you know what always comes up is, um, eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking. Like you have to listen to that on every tour. And then I'll try to like, I'll make sure anyone who I'm touring with gets to DJ a little bit because I want to learn more about music that I wouldn't naturally listen to.
2: I also am curious about like, so during the pandemic, I moved in with my girlfriend and- Congratulations. "Ah, Thank you. And I was like, I don't want to watch TV every night. So what are some games that we can play? So I was Mm -hmm. like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull out some old favorites. And I bought a bunch of games. And the one that has remained is a game called Skippo. Have you heard of this What is Skippo? It's made by the creators of Uno. So it's like Uno's lesser known distant relative. You have my attention. It's a simple concept of like counting cards. It's like less complicated than Uno. Elizabeth and I have bought Skippo like five times during the pandemic because we'll like bring it to a place and then we just end up like giving it to somebody because they're like, this is so fun.
1: Wait, I need to get
2: this. You can get it at like a Target I'm going to keep an eye out because
1: maybe my next trip to Walmart or Target, I'll have to get Skippo. Normally in the car, I just like interview everyone. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) And there's a strange, I feel like there's a strange automatic buy-in when you're in a long car ride. Like normally it wouldn't be appropriate to like ask people what is their deepest fear or what do they want to be done with their corpse when they die or like what are their favorite memories from the past 24 hours? But like if you're in a long car ride, you can be like, what's the best thing that happened today? Like would you rather be alone or surrounded by a
2: crowd of people? You know, like you can just really get deep with people. It Gives you a chance to be like really creative and also really creepy. Oh, I want to tell you if you like serial killers, I think you're going to really like this book. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon. I don't know if you've actually heard of this I have or not read this seen before. this. So this is the book that they're making into a Martin Scorsese movie, and, like, Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be in it, and Jason Isbell and Sturgill Simpson are going to be in it as well. So this is, like, a crazy book. It was – so it says, in the 1920s, the richest people per capita in the world, the whole world, were members of the Osage Nation in Oklahoma. That's because, like, the United States – like, pushed them on to this reservation. They're like, here, have mm-hmm. this crappy land. And it turned out there was so much oil under it. But then they started getting murdered. Oh, God. Um, it was, like, a pretty bad situation down there. So, like, this book is about that. Is it? It's about oppressions that the United States put upon First Nations people in, like, oh, kind of, gosh. like, the late 1800s to the early 1900s to now and sort of, like, explaining, like, basically how... The U.S. like broke down tribes and um, what are those terrible schools called?
1: Oh, the boarding uh, schools.
2: Yeah, they would like take the children away and sort of like anglify them. Right. And this Cut book covers that. Cut their hair and stuff, yeah. And then it's also about the birth of the FBI. So Whoa. And it's really well written. This guy, David Gran. Okay, I'm
1: going to need to get my copy of that. Do you have any podcast recommendations for while I'm out and about
2: driving 13 hours into Illinois? (laughs) So we just recently did this promo swap with this awesome like old time jam podcast called Get Up in the Cool, which I totally would recommend because Cameron DeWitt is the host and Mm -hmm. he's like turned the jam and the hang at the jam into a podcast. And it's really cool because these musicians are playing like traditional songs that they've learned from tradition bearers. And they're talking about those songs, Great. and you know it's pretty fun. So I'd recommend that one. And then my favorite podcast by far is this podcast, which if you haven't listened to it, you're in for a treat. It's called You're Wrong About.
1: Oh my gosh, I listened to the Courtney Love episode. That was so riveting. I need to get back into that podcast.
2: Yeah, they did. they did recently, like within the last year, they did like a five-part Princess Diana episode, oh. and it's bonkers. OK, I'm going to listen to that on my drive. Okay, let's get into our, our podcast. Oh my gosh. Okay, so we're going to be talking, or Lizzie's going to be talking to Kishibashi today. Uh, do you want to mm-hmm. set us up for this? Sure. So, uh,
1: Kaoru Ishibashi, who is known as Kishibashi, is a violinist, guitarist, multi-instrumentalist, singer, and songwriter uh, from Washington State and Virginia, He got a really interesting start in music because he went to Cornell uh, to study engineering, ended up flunking out and kind of realizing his true path in music. Um, He went to Berkeley College of Music and studied film scoring, started playing in bands, moved to New York. Um, The rest is history. So he has this incredible ability to be fluent in rock and pop and experimental styles that is really just refreshing and uplifting. And all of his music is so energetic, sort of hypnotic, really like brings you into his loving arms in a way. I don't know if that's too cheesy to say. When you talk to him, you just realize that he's a person who is incredibly creative and critical, um, but also super hopeful. And a lot of his work deals with how we can, in a very practical sense, bring empathy into our daily lives. So it was just so, so cool to talk with him, um, not only about his outlook on life, but about music and family and road trips and traveling. um, And something I was really excited to dig into with him was his recent film and music project about the internment camps that uh, the United States government uh, subjected Japanese Americans to during World War II because he's done a ton of research on that um, kind of at the locations of the camps and has created a documentary and a bunch of music around that. And it's it's
2: breathtaking, the work. Also, Kay is like the nicest person ever. He's a ray of sunshine. (laughs) Totally. Totally Aria Sunshine. Okay, we're going to take a listen to a song from Kay before we get to the interview between Lizzie and Kay. This is from his latest EP. The song is Wait for Springtime. And then we'll get to our conversation with Kishibashi on Basic Folk. (laughs)
3: acre of our hill Was suddenly big and small It was empty in the winter I'll just wait for springtime And I wanted you so savage As a gentle Famous of sinners, we were silenced all but one. I was reaching for the stars, but the rockets fed me well. Well, the view on earth is magic. I'll just wait for spring.
1: Welcome to Basic Folk. I am Lizzie No, and I am so happy to be talking with the phenomenal songwriter, violinist, multi-instrumentalist, and performer Kishi Vashi. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: I want to start by talking about nature in your music. All of your music across albums strikes me as really romantic with a capital R, like mm,
0: capital full R. of feeling
1: okay. and... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, like that, that connection to nature, is a connection to the outdoors something that you've always felt deeply? Or is that something that's developed as you've traveled as a musician?
0: Well, first of all, I like to think of my romantic with a more italicized R, r you know? Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, no, actually, you know, nature came to me like later in life. Honestly, I was like a city dweller. I lived in New York City. You know, I was kind mm-hmm. of like a, a man of industry you know, in technology and stuff like that. And then, yes, I think recently I just had like a lot of opportunities to come out to Montana, you know, the mountains. Mm-hmm. I don't know if your view your viewers cannot see this, yeah. uh, this uh, felt mountain behind me, but, um, uh, Oh, it's I, felt.
1: I thought it was a, a neat mural.
0: Yeah, no, it's like, the LT's, like, you can get it online. <laughs> but, um, <Okay>. uh, <laughs> uh, I think like, I started realizing that, you know, the power of nature it has on people, you know, it's like this, when you go to like an ocean or, or a mountain that's mm-hmm. so vast, it makes you feel really small. And it gives you like this, this kind of sense of like a, a humbling feeling. And I think I really tapped into that, right? Like, you know, later in life, because I used to just be excited about.
1: Is that a feeling that you feel when you're snowboarding too? I, I've heard that you're a big snowboarder.
0: <laughs> I, I love snowboarding. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. just adrenaline, you know. <laughs> yeah. But being but being up <laughs> being up in a on top of a mountain, like ready, you know, and just like taking the sights in. I just think mm-hmm. that, like, you know, a city dwellers just like sometimes you just lose touch and you wonder why you're so frustrated or so. Uh, disconnected, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. you just need that grounding. That's why you need that's why you need parks and open spaces and things like that in your
1: life. Yeah, I think we're built for that as a species. Mm -hmm. Okay, back to music. So you began your musical education at the Suzuki School which is, I learned Suzuki violin as a three-year-old. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> no way. And for any listeners who might not be familiar with Suzuki, it's a method of learning instruments that emphasizes ear training and memorization, and I'm sure you could fill in the blanks on that. So what I'm curious about is how much of that particular type of technique stays with you to this day, and how did you, in a technical sense, start to transition into jazz and rock? Like, was it challenging to kind of transform the Suzuki technique into all different styles.
0: Yeah. So Suzuki technique is like really kind of made for early learning, I think. Mm -hmm. And like, it's, uh, the one thing that I really, really value from it is the ear training. So just Mm -hmm. learning by ear is something that has been done traditionally, like forever by any, any musician, you know, it's only until like the, the sophisticated classical music came around that you have to like read everything, you know, you know, and it's like when you, when you learn something by ear, you really internalize it. It becomes like a part of you you know, and that's something I always appreciated. So like, when I'm trying to learn new things, I, I try and like, listen, first, Uh complicated classical music, it's just sometimes you just have to like read it, because it's just too right. too complicated, you know, but even like with jazz connecting, you know, like I got into jazz violin, and like swing fiddle and stuff like that. And that's, you know, you could read a solo, you could read stuff, but you but it's really better to just learn it by ear.
1: Right. And, that, and, learn and then the you feel. can
0: learn, learn the feel. And then eventually that'll just like you know, it'll become like this thing that comes out of you, you know, like part Mm -hmm. of your language. So
1: yeah, in a way, you know, reading music is, is super important. But it can also, especially when you're young, be like, another layer of barrier between you and like, the actual playing.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's just about internalizing the music. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of criticism from like the classical music, uh, the established institution that, you know, that they Mm -hmm. don't read very well, like Suzuki (laughs) players, you know? But, you know, I can just say, uh, you know, who cares? It's like if you're having fun with the music, that's that's pretty much what matters, you know.
1: Yeah. And in a way, there's sort of a folk ethos to listening and being able to memorize things rather than reading them. And what does good fiddle sound mean to you now?
0: Fiddle sound. Good fiddle sound? (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I mean, I guess people always, they always ask me like, what's the difference between fiddle and violin? And it's just mm-hmm. basically you're like more drunk when you play fiddle, you yeah. know, it's, <laughs> the same, it's the same instrument, um, but... I don't know. There's so many amazing violinists out there, you know. Yeah. It's just like uh, I'm really a pretty mediocre violinist. I do things weird differently with my violin, but you know, I, I don't keep it. Okay. up. I don't, play, I don't play every day. That's, I don't <laughs> like. I don't wake up and like, man, I just want to like play. <laughs> That's right. not me.
1: Do you think of yourself more as like an artist writ large than like specifically an instrumentalist? Like, if you, if a stranger was like, what, do, what are you? What do you do? What, what would you say first?
0: I would say musician, the broad category, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I'm like, well, what do you mean? And then I'm like, well, I'm a songwriter, Mm -hmm. but I also play violin because that's one of my strong points, you know. I play, you know, I play, play, it's like what that was my bread and butter for like 10 years when I lived in New York, you know, so it's like, um, so I I treat it as like a craft, Um, but then like, uh, but I do enjoy it. I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes, yeah, yeah, but I'm, but you know, it's like back then when I was grinding, you know, I I would shed, I would practice every day, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot, but now I don't, I'm more of a, you know conceptual artist. I produce and I like write you know work on my songs
1: I'm always so jealous of people I mean you always want to be what you're not because I'm always so envious of artists that have the like discipline to just play and play for hours a day and I just I don't have it I could write every day I don't think (laughs) I could I don't I can't play all the time so that definitely resonates with me
0: (laughs) Like, I'm also not the guy who's just always like singing in my room, Mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, some people, some people just like, they love to just like pick up their guitar and just like sing all the time. Yeah. And for me, it's not exactly, yeah, I'd rather just like chill, you know, (laughs) like read or something or answer email, answer emails. I don't know.
1: (laughs) You have to be taking in, taking in inputs rather than just always like playing and and putting out. Yeah.
0: I'm basically like lazy until I really have
3: to, (laughs) you know.
1: That's I, a humble way to put it.
0: <laughs> but I also feel like being happy is like a really uh it's a really produ- good productive state to be in, you know, content yes. and not stressed out. You know.
1: So. Yeah, well, if you if it starts to feel really burdensome, that's not gonna be productive. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. But, but when did you start singing in front of audiences? Like you started out as a violinist, but when did you kind of make that connection like I can sing and play?
0: I was in like a folk band in college mm-hmm. before I went to jazz school and then um So I started, I started singing then and then, uh, but then I got really into jazz Mm
1: -hmm. and then
0: like, um,
1: were you singing jazz at all? Or was it like, it was, it's always been folk singing. Uh,
0: I don't think I ever pursued that, that jazz singing thing. Um, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I do it at gigs. Like if I had a restaurant Mm -hmm. gig and I had to sing something, sure. You know, like I could sing like Dinah or whatever, you know,
1: um, but (gasps) wow. Would but, love to see.
0: Yeah, you know, da, na, da, ba, da, 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 whatever. I don't even know the words. I I suck at lyrics.
1: So <laughs> that's another thing
0: you need to know about me. It's like, I can't memorize anything.
1: So you're not good at playing violin. You're not great with lyrics. I'm wow.
0: lazy. I'm a procrastinator. <laughs> but,
1: oh, I want to talk about that, those college days, because I've mm-hmm. I've read in interviews with you that you didn't even think of a career in music as something that you saw for yourself. And you were studying engineering before you ended up going to Berkeley College of Music, so when did it when did the light switch turn on that making a living in music was even possible um, When did that start to feel real
0: well, like as an Asian guy like growing up you're like being an artist is not even an option yeah. at least in that town that era you know you're an engineer you do something mm-hmm. that's like that gives you a tangible you know vocation like being right. a lawyer tech, something technical you know they get you a job. So, um, but I had been around orchestras, you -hmm. know, like there's the Virginia Symphony where I grew up, uh, but I, but I, yeah, but I, and I interacted with like members of them, you know, but I, I never really saw that as a, I never thought I was like that good as a violinist, you know.
1: But that's such a particular competitive avenue when it comes to like the orchestra auditioning and how the level that you have to be at.
0: Yeah. But in the eighties, nineties, that's all there was, you know, right. There was no, there was no professional uh, alternative violinists out there, right. you know? <laughs> so, um, it wasn't until like, I started, you know, playing in bands in college at Cornell actually. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then I was like, I started sticking out, you know, and people are like, then there's this local band, a professional right. local band was like, Hey man, you want to play uh, with us? And I was like, Oh, ding, you know, never right, ended when the up phone play- starts <laughs> to ring. <clears throat> yeah. When the phone, and actually we had, uh, landlines back then, but they actually did <laughs> ring, you know? Um, but I think like, well, once I, I, I was put on ap- academic probation because I was just like playing music all the time, you know, and I was not a great engineer student. And so that's when I realized I just, uh, I just loved it so much. I I saw that there might be a chance to have a career. But mm-hmm. anyways, I went to Berkeley College of Music. I studied jazz violin, right. but I also being like the careful guy that I am, I, uh, you know, I got a, a degree in film scoring. Like film composition, so oh that's, great, you know, just, just in so your I spare
1: t- in your spare time, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. But that's a, <laughs> but that's just like you know, just the safe part of me, you know, just make having something to fall back on, yeah. Then, always,
1: uh, always knowing yeah. that you can land somewhere,
0: uh, but it was it was probably the greatest thing because because the, then basically I I did music full time after that, just bouncing between violin playing and film scoring because just doing wow. one or, one or the other is just like that's that's tough. So I was just doing both, you know, and that allowed me to to keep just doing music.
1: That's intense. So, did you have a clear sense of what your goals were when you, like, when you graduated school and you were like starting to work, um, in scoring and as a musician? Did you think like this is the dream? This is when I'll know I've made it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wanted to be a burning jazz violinist. That's what I wanted to be. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and then and then I went to New York, and then I was like, oh, everybody's burning here, and uh, there's too many fires, too many fires to uh, <laughs> to kindle, you know, and then. uh yeah and then I, that's when I started getting into original you know music which I cool. wanted to do My and so I had a band called Jupiter One
3: mm-hmm. which
0: was like which actually started in, you know uh, it became a rock band but it started as an instrumental like drum and bass like jazz fusion band that not that many people came to see except our friends and then once I started singing more, more and more people came out you know and like girls would start coming out and the girls That's the girls start know. coming out yeah you know, when the girls <laughs> come that means the guys follow and then yes. you then you have a crowd and before you know it you can charge tickets hell people yeah. you don't know people you don't know will actually pay money to see you <laughs>
1: parent and i want to know i read that when your daughter was really small you wrote very quiet songs and also because you were living in new york like you have a lot of neighbors and that's like one little example of how being a parent impacts your work but like now she's a teenager correct oh yeah and how Definitely. okay so how <laughs> is she influencing your work now
0: now i don't know I mean, early on, the reason why I'd write quiet songs was because Mm -hmm. she'd just be sleeping in like Mm -hmm. the the hallway over there, you know? And so it's like, that's like when she's asleep, that's like gold, you know? Right. Uh, Because otherwise it's just like running around like crazy. Can't do anything. So now it's just like, you know, I try and give her like the best life, all the opportunities, Mm -hmm. you know? She's definitely musically um, inclined. Like she's really talented actually, but she has no Mm -hmm. intention of being a musician, (laughs) which is funny. (laughs) Uh, the parents don't want to, I mean, kids don't want to be what their parents are, you know? Right. Do you so, pressure
1: her to go into the family business?
0: No. Nah, uh, no. But the one thing I, I do is like, I make her, we make her play violin, you know, cause that's like a legacy. We call it, yeah. I say, I, I call it legacy, but it kind of is, you know, it's kind of, set. you can do it. What are you going to do? Like stop playing and just playing, play games or something. You know no, what I mean? It's what are you going like, to do with your time? Yeah. yeah what are you going to do? With, yeah. You have time to like keep up the violin. She's pretty good. Right. You know, so
1: that's great. Um, In interviews, you've said that you are grateful that despite some pressure to assimilate, your parents spoke Japanese with you and maintained a connection to that culture. So how do you walk that tightrope with your own daughter? Are you speaking Japanese with her? Are you intentional about maintaining a connection to Japanese culture with her?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like um, when I grew up, assimilation was like kind of like a virtue you know like it was regarded as one that's like how you can blend into white society you know the best Mm -hmm. so that you can succeed whatever that means you know and um but i was always like not afraid of like learning about japanese there was some like japan bashing in the 80s that was like Mm. it was kind of a little tense you know that's when like japanese cars started flooding america and like it was like so cheap and detroit was like really upset you know um but then after that like i don't know it took a while to like It's kind of good to see that she's like, well, she's into anime now, you know, and like, and there's a lot of Japanese like manga and a lot of Japanese culture is really popular in America. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of like, it's actually relieving to see that it's not something that's stigmatized or something that you can be, you know, uh, afraid of showing your culture, Mm -hmm. which, which is not the case for many other cultures in America, you know.
1: Right. It's so strange that it's like, what happens to be on trend is what is going to be accepted.
0: Yeah, so, you know, I'm really lucky that I'm in that position, you know. But I I remind Mm -hmm. her of that, you know, that it's not – it never – it wasn't like that. definitely wasn't like that, like, 75 years ago, you know, (laughs) when our countries were at war, you know. So it's like – Unreal. Yeah, it's a –
1: And speaking of that, how much – so your mom conducted interviews with survivors of the internment camps, correct?
0: Well, she was – you know, my parents are both immigrants um, Mm post-war, you know, so – But she was hired when she was a student at University of Washington. She was like hired by a researcher, I think, because she spoke Japanese to go like interview. Wow. Yeah. Like interview survivors like in the 60s, maybe. And she said that they did not. Well, first of all, she said what stuck out was that they didn't speak Japanese and she didn't understand like why they didn't want to speak Japanese. And then also that she remembers just like they didn't want to really talk about it because it was just like so humiliating you know to just be mm-hmm. by by your own like home your government you know to just be like locked up right. stripped of your wealth you know
1: and did your was your mom open about that work with you when you were young like did you have this sense that that history was connected to you in any way or did it feel like this is some textbook crazy thing that happened long ago
0: i don't know i never really talked about too much like um like injustice or like um mm-hmm uh social justice issues with my mom you know she's really positive she's like she's religious Mm -hmm. and she's a really wonderful like loving person you know and uh so we never really talked about like this is what's wrong with america you know so until i start working i mean i did the project i did an internment camp project in high school Mm -hmm. and they took me to like the museum like in dc where there's an exhibit but uh it wasn't until i started working on this movie that we started talking about her experience and also like her okinawan experience but she never really, because right. she's like, she was. She grew up post-war Okinawa, and Okinawa was just a mess, mm-hmm. you know, after American, the Americans invaded. And there was this huge war, Battle of Okinawa. Wow. Yeah.
1: Do you think you'll ever, I mean, does it feel raw? Or do you feel like there's something that you would be ever be able to write about in her stories? Because it's, I think it would be so... Interesting to hear about, but I think it can be so so challenging to like dig into your own family's history.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm still processing it. I would like to make a trip to yeah. Okinawa again, you know, because we filmed a little bit for this movie. Um, but I think just like the culture, just you know, I visit Okinawa a lot, but I didn't realize how much discrimination mm-hmm. there was, like from the mainland, right? And assimilation, and how like it's really, I don't know, it's like a, it's kind of like Hawaii of Japan, right? You know, it's like it's just a unfortunate. You know, small territory that just got taken over by a larger country. You know, you just can't. Yeah, and it's wild
1: <laughs> that your mom would go from that experience to being an American and being an immigrant here, where that issue of assimilating is so front and center as well.
0: Yeah, I just don't think, like back in the day, it's just survival. So, you know, mm-hmm. you don't, I don't, I don't think you have time to be bitter about it. You know what I mean?
1: Right. You just, and <laughs> what does your mom think of your work? around the internment camps and we're going to get, I, I want to dig in a little bit more oh, yeah, yeah. your, your immigrant EP, but what is she, what is her reaction when she sees the music and the film that you're making?
0: Uh, yeah, she's really supportive, you know, so it's kind of, wow, like, that's great. And it's great. She's like a beacon for me, like as far as like how like forgiveness works and like healing and about like just the past is definitely something that has to be, you know, remembered. But as far as like mm-hmm. us in the present, you know, you, you can't let it, just debilitate you you know what I mean you have to just kind of you have to live your best life you know so it's like right so you can't you can't let all that anger and hatred and all that stuff just take take over you know Mm
1: -hmm. so are there uh strategies that you have to use when you're like knee-deep in this research to get to that place of like whether it's acceptance or kind of just like you know living your best life or joy like how do you get there
0: Uh, you know, a lot of the, initially it's like when you learn about like, oh, how different it was back then, you know, Mm -hmm. I think what I do is I just make sure that I'm like kind of grateful for how not, Mm -hmm. not awful our lives are, you know, recently, you know, but also being like firm about, uh, change, you know, and progress, like progressivism, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of, it's a mixture. I'm generally a positive person, so I'm not, I don't let, I don't like cry over Trump for four years, you know, (laughs) you know? We lived through it. (laughs) Exactly. So it's like, yeah, yeah, it's just something I, um, yeah. I mean, the one thing is like learning, the more you learn about history, the more grateful I am of just how safe we are, safer we are, you know, Mm. definitely.
1: Yeah, just statistically, like we don't live in in the violent cultures of the past, even though there's great inequality now.
0: Yeah, and exactly. And even the great inequality now, it's like, uh, I'm very excited to see like how Like Sola, my daughter's generation is much more inclusive, you know, and like um, more tolerant of like a lot of like or of supporting like marginalized communities and et cetera, you know. So it's like I'm, I'm like elated that it's like changing in a positive Mm. way. So, you know, but I guess I'm like that middle aged you know, person who's like halfway between a really old conservative person and like, <laughs> or, you know, like a liberal conservative, a liberal old yeah. person, liberal old person still going to be somewhat conservative.
1: Okay. So I want to talk about your, your trips to Heart Mountain, um, which is in Wyoming, uh, where you've been investigating the World War II internment camp. What first prompted you to go out there?
0: Uh, I mean, with the movie initially, um, one of the, yeah. And one of the, I have a bunch of friends who are, you know, I met a lot of younger, like uh, university, like grad students who are doing research out there. So, um, it was kind of like, it was really fun to just discover, you know, like I'm not connected to it. So I'm like an outsider. So I I treated it as like a civil, civil rights issue, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. but then I got to learn the community and then I started realizing how, you know, how the assimilation and suppression of culture and like all these things you know, connected to myself, you know. Um, But I don't know, it's it's also a really beautiful place, like, you know, to just hang out, just the open West. It's like very exotic, exotic for me.
3: So
1: as you've talked with the community there, and, and as it's my impression that you've like, really gotten to meet a lot of people that were survivors of the internment camp, or their or their families, mm-hmm. do you feel like you have a role in telling their story? Do you feel like you have a specific job to play in that community?
0: Uh, yeah, a lot of times, like a lot of um, as far as like outreach and just um, making the story known, I feel like there's, I definitely uh, need to do this. In that, like a lot of people don't know about it, and it's such a it to not know about it is really it's like a, a really dangerous situation to be. So it's like something I feel like um, uh, and I, I need to do, but also like I owe it, owe it to them for, you know, for opening up to me and like allowing me to feel a part of their community, you know? So um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a story that I, I, I want to tell and then also connect it to, you know, every other, like all the other marginalized stories here, you know, as, as we, as a culture, like combat like white supremacy, you know and understand like how it's changing you know or being questioned
1: yeah i think it's a really timely topic i mean it it's it's almost like these loops of history keep coming back of like who are we going to choose to exclude and scapegoat now <laughs> yeah to in in a, as a way of never getting to the bottom of like real inequality and real problems
0: Like, like everything, like even like uh, having empathy and like and inclusion and like social justice, these are all like very recent. I feel like they're very Mm -hmm. recent constructs, you know, from the 60s, 70s, you know, post war, Mm -hmm. post Holocaust things, you know, and uh, if you look back before then, the world was just like a rat race of just tribalism and like, you know, I'm going to kill you before you kill me kind of situation, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or I'm going to conquer you. I'm going to conquer you before, you know, you take advantage of me. And it was like, that was the norm, you know? So it's like an ethnic cleansing was a norm. And so like right. we, as modern people, you know, we are now really blessed to have this like acknowledgement, this understanding that that's wrong and that we are better than like our previous generations. So I think that's right. why like history is like extremely important to know. It's, and that's, that's kind of what I keep in mind all the time.
1: That makes me think of uh, the song on the Emigrant EP Town of Prey. What's the first line? Is it, this will all be mine?
0: Yeah, so he's a town of Prairie, yeah. So that's a good tie-in. So the, uh, <laughs> so the immigrant, that whole idea is like, you know, I was just, just thinking about like frontier, like pioneering, you mm-hmm. know? And it's like, you think, um, it was just such a violent time. You know, you have like prospectors yeah. coming out from uh, just searching for gold or riches or just a better life. You know, and then you have like mm-hmm. uh, the like Native Americans who are not happy that you're <laughs> you're coming in. You know, and
1: <laughs> just charging in. Yeah,
0: just charging in and like taking over. You know, some I'm, I mean, and it's just like so. It's so it's fascinating me like so much. Mm-hmm. You know, and that these like, and I and I always ask the question to myself like as I was traveling. You know, because I did a, a couple road trips. Um, like last year, I did a big road trip you know, to, across the country with the RV, you know, with Sola. And mm-hmm. I kept asking myself, is like, is there a, po- is it, po- was it possible for like, you know, the Native Americans and the pioneers to just get along and, in peacefully? And I right. don't, I don't think I have an answer for that. You know, it was just. Right.
1: So- like, is there another universe in which it didn't have to end this way?
0: Yeah. Like two proud, you know, like two proud people, races of, and I, when I say Native Americans, like races, I'm talking, you know, there's still tribalism within them at the time, right. you know, but like. Mm-hmm and they would, they would find alliances within, you know, different tribes to, to use to their advantage, you know, but like, um, I don't know. It's just like, I don't know that it was possible. It was just so violent and like right. territorial and, and tribal, you know, even like the, the white tribe. <laughs> I mean, like the early right. Americans were, were like a tribe, you know, combating, uh, I might get in trouble for that, but, um, it's like, what I'm saying is that it, the imagination, um, I kind of put into it like when you go out into the, the open you know you mm-hmm. kind of like if you live in a city you, re- you really don't see that history that came before you but if, no. you, if you go out into the prairie you can see this is probably what it looked like 150 years ago mm-hmm. you know and it's so hard to like thrive here like in Montana and like Wyoming it's just mm-hmm. so cold in the winter and it's like there's barely any resources right. you know so it's like I got imagining a lot.
1: Let's talk about the the EP okay. which yes. I've listened to now a million times. <laughs> oh, thanks. Um I'm curious about how you approach arrangements and production. Did you with this EP did you know what you wanted it to sound like or did you have song ideas and then you built out layers from there?
0: Well, normally normally what I do is I I demo everything. So like I put it together mm-hmm. like I just play everything like whatever on guitar? Guitar and just whatever I think it mm-hmm. needs, you know. And then when I know then when I feel good about it, that's And then I have enough songs, then I'll, Mm -hmm. then I'll call up my musicians and be like, okay, yo, you know, but then, uh, so this time around, I had like five, I had like four good songs that I felt good about. And then like a couple, Mm -hmm. and then I added a couple covers. And that's my Mm -hmm. that's the EP. So
1: I think the covers that you chose were really interesting. Were you thinking thematically about that emigrant experience? And like, this sort of like empathy thread? With those two covers, it was Regina Spektor and Dolly Parton, correct?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that, um, and I, I love those songs. Also, I just wanted fema- uh, just feature like female songwriters. I think that are underrated. Talk about it. You know, <laughs> it's like because I looked at like I was like, oh, I need a couple covers. And I, I was looking around like Rolling Stone top hundred songwriters or whatever list, mm-hmm. and it's just mostly dudes and like Dolly Parton maybe and like Madonna or something. Right, and it's just like. Oh, it's a, a
1: damn shame is what we call it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's just a, yeah, it's another man's world, you know, so that needs to be mm-hmm. like acknowledged. Um, and so um, ah, I thought I'll probably won't cover, I won't do a Bob Dylan cover ever in my life. You know what I mean? Or record one, at there's, least <laughs> there's no need. They've been, yeah.
1: it's been done. I think yeah. he can live without your support. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I love, I love Bob Dylan, <laughs> yeah. but,
0: but, you know, I, I won't make a point of it, you know? So I feel I feel like that's the kind of thing you need that people need to do just to be inclusive, I guess, to change to change the the dynamic.
1: So many people are talking about it right now and it's good to just be about it. You don't have to like proclaim your allegiance to feminism just put in a little put in the work. Yeah, yeah just <laughs> I support that. Yeah,
0: just hire a col- hire a person of color, you know. What's the big deal? Yeah,
1: just do it. Yeah. Um can you tell us the story of your violin? which is named tsunami.
0: Oh, violent tsunami. Yeah. Uh, so my uh a friend uh friend of mine um Mr. Yuba. He's Brazilian Japanese and he made cool. he made this he's been like luthering, like kind of like as a hobby and then well it's first a hobby and then he got a, then he <laughs> started getting really good and he made this amazing violin and it's like it's a Stradivarius Gnarry like hybrid wow um and it's sound i and the moment i played it I was like wow this is a really great violin and and so is it like
1: that Harry Potter moment when your wand chooses you
0: i think it chose me well he definitely brought it to me <laughs> but uh, but i definitely <laughs> and so yeah so i um and my mom you know my mom's like uh, i'll buy it for you so my thanks mom she bought she bought it for me and then shout uh, out
1: shouts to mom i know
0: violence not but he uh, he had actually um he's a buddhist uh, he's a Buddhist priest. Not a, he doesn't, he, mm-hmm. he's just, he has a training. And so he like, um, Monk maybe? Monk. Yeah. But I don't know if he's active, you know, do you have to be active? Okay. So anyways, he's like a, but he, when he was creating the violin, it was during the Fukushima, um, the nuclear disaster and the, the oh, sorry, yeah. the um, the Sendai um, tsunami disaster. And basically he had put a lot of his thoughts into that tragedy as like, while he was making the violin. And so he, wow. he he named it tsunami so on the inside says tsunami violin.
1: Are you spiritual at all? Like do you feel like that emotion and intention affects your playing? Like do you feel like you have a relationship with the instrument?
0: I don't know that. I feel the the sorrow of everybody in this violin, but I okay. definitely but I definitely feel the significance of it, you know. And and I, mm-hmm. and I think that, you know, like you can put your emotion into something in inanimate mm-hmm. object or something. And that's a very Japanese thing, is that there's yeah. that everything has a spirit. Um yeah, I can see I, I, I get a good feeling on it. It's also really nice violent. So
1: Well I have read that you you said something that I thought was really interesting, even though I, you know, am not as knowledgeable on the context that as an American you don't really dive too deep into the Shinto concept of, you know, every object having a soul. But I'm wondering, do you think about the soul at all like the human soul do you have a concept of (laughs) spirituality
0: yeah i mean i think like do i believe in god (laughs) i mean what you asking me
1: god capital g can be so boring i'm more curious of like do you feel like connected to spirit beyond like what we can see
0: um yeah i think so I, i don't like firmly believe in uh i don't know i mean i find i hope that there's like a purpose to our existence, because mm-hmm. it's like our world is just completely, you know, could just be chaotic and chaos and b- bunch of atoms floating in space. But somehow we're actually here, talking to each other, connecting across uh, hundreds of, or thousands of miles, you know, and just like not even, um, and like empathizing with people we don't even know, you know, and having we have this like incredible experience as human beings that it's just like I would hope that that there is a meaning to this and that there's something after, you know, and I think that's that belief and that having that faith is probably like the believe in God. And then I think that like, and even like beyond the physical, you know, I think, you know, there's probably, I don't know. I think there's something out there, you know? So I feel like everything is, is, is connected in a way. Sometimes we feel it. Sometimes we don't. You know, but when you do,
1: yeah, I like to think that like I can be—I may not know like what God is, capital G—but I'm humble enough to realize that I don't know everything, and there could be something out there,
0: and we'll never ever know. And if somebody claims to know, they're just bullshit. So it's like, <laughs> you know, what I mean, that's what—that's what I think. You know, but we find like, yeah. But then, you know, when you're in nature, that's when I feel like you feel really connected. When you see the magnificence yes. of just and your humble existence in this beautiful place, that's when I'm like, oh, I'm like. Constantly, like there's a hill over uh, by where I I just moved to Montana, but there's like a hill. Oh, great. And I, uh, I, yeah, I just go see the sunset like every day. And it's like different every single day. That's beautiful. Mm
1: -hmm. I have a question about um, an interview that you gave to KEXP, where I thought you made a really interesting point where you said, I think people are more receptive now. And when I say people, I mean, white people are receptive (laughs) to difficult histories. So... Like I sat with that for a minute and I I wondered to what degree do you feel a responsibility or like maybe even a burden or, you know, a request to educate white people? And I mean, you are a very well-known and somewhat politically outspoken Asian American artist. Do you find that white audiences kind of turn to you for your take on things? Like, do you feel like you're being asked to educate people?
0: um definitely recently for sure i think um i'm always like i'm very non-confrontational at least i just like to get along so i was never very like politically active until Mm -hmm. recently probably because honestly i saw a tipping point where it was actually okay to feel like for example like black lives matter the first time it came around in ferguson it was kind of fringe you know corporations weren't on board they were it was kind of like uh, a liberal thing right but then like now, like four years later, or I don't know, five, year, ten, eight years later, it's basically like companies are now like, you know, acknowledging Beating us uh, over the head with it. <laughs> yeah, but it's but I, it's, it's not like the companies are progressive, they're, by, they're following the culture of society, Oh you yeah. know what I mean? the money. And so it's like, I think that America, you see
1: like a Pepsi commercial for Black Lives Matter, you know, it's no longer fringe.
0: Yeah, you know, that at least 51% of co- like Coca Cola drinkers. Are actually believe in like progressive um, politics to some extent, or like at least acknowledging police brutality, you know. And I think that that's like I'm I'm just more like I feel more comfortable, you know, to 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 be like to say that. And if I, if I'm gonna be like on the edge, I want to be on the you know I, on the way I feel. And I think it's you know I'm, I'm definitely careful uh, about like being like too liberal on my like social media stuff. I'm very liberal, you know, but. Like, especially social media, because people come to me to be to stay positive And like, they want to hear like, fun things. And, you know, I don't want to bum people out like all the time. Right. Know? And so I'm very selective.
1: That's tough. I'm sure you have to balance like, giving people what they expect from you. Yeah. Which is, you know, many wonderful things versus like, what may feel really relevant and pressing to you at the moment.
0: Yeah. So usually, I like to put my own context on it and like how I feel about it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then like, Occasionally there'll be some trolls and stuff, but it's it's never like I'm never like uh, trying to get a reaction out of people and just like you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's a uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm also older, so now I feel like as I've as I've matured into my forties, I feel like I don't want to be just a just a childish musician musician anymore. You know, I, I want to. I'm mm-hmm. I'm a member of society now. So.
1: Right. No, I just think it's so interesting because often like. You're not strictly a folk artist of course, but we are on basic folk. So sometimes when I think about these folk audiences, they are not entirely but sort of predominantly white and you know, if your audience is of the dominant culture and then they see you as this sort of messenger of, you know, education and fun and politics, like you you end up being so many things to so many people and I wonder how that responsibility affects you.
0: Well, I think it's like um I believe in like um not one single person will ever change anything it's really a collective thing if you hear about right. it here, you hear about it here, hear about it on the news and maybe your favorite violin guy Kishibashi mentions it over here mm-hmm. then maybe that'll put together help you like kind of like warm up to the idea you know and that's like that's that's my hope
1: That's such an interesting way of looking at it. I think so many people like political scientists are trying to dial in influence and figure out like what changes people's minds why do people vote the way they do mm-hmm. shop the way they do etc and i think that's a really interesting way of looking at it that it's not any one single thing
0: yeah and that's that's tied into like um like people ask me about like promotion like they like my career they're like when did you make it you know what was the one big thing and i right. i've had a lot of big things but it's like i never i never think i never bet all my chips on like one thing you know what i mean mm. you can you can play like you get like a good write-up in NPR, like you play Letterman or like, I don't know, you do something like really cool. A bunch of these things will add up to a sustained career, you know? And so like some people, well, for me, like, Six, for me, uh, success is basically a lot of people showing up at my shows. You know, and so that's yeah. the only that's the only gauge I have. That's the success
1: you know? we're, get, we're we're getting to. That's like, making it
0: like sold out tours. Like that's to me that makes me feel good. Um, but as far as like um, white 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 audiences, there's like a um, there's a statistic that that's kind of like g- grounds me into like my worldview in that like American um, a few years ago, over fifty percent of like school aged children are people of color. and, yeah. and it's like when I learned that I was like, Oh no wonder there's like a backlash. (laughs) Like no wonder people feeling like they're replaced, you know? And no wonder. And and it's like, that's when I started feeling encouraged, you know, as, as a person of color or as a minority, but also like, I I try and encourage like, you know, white people that it's not actually, it's not something to be fearful of, you know? Right. It's like, it's actually a beautiful thing. And it's like, we're finally, you know, making uh, a lot of other people more happy in this country, you know, Mm -hmm. and inclusive. And then like, um it's just about like sharing wealth you know we have to we've a lot you know and i'm a privileged person asian people have done pretty well for themselves recently you know financially at least and then like you can um you know you just have to give up some wealth to make make room for others you know and so it's like to give happiness to It is it. that simple yeah yeah so i think it's like i'm very encouraged you know um but a lot of it is about like changing our feeling about you know or even like you know folk music <laughs> when you say Americana, I'm like what does that mean yeah, is it it's def- it's a it's a
1: it's a trap <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I mean it's
0: American it's a type of music, but it's definitely not black people don't play Americana, you know what I mean it's like a white right? it's a white folk thing, right like what does that even mean it's like maybe we should uh i don't I don't know are you guys questioning is that a is that something that's being talked about
1: <sighs> I um, think it is being talked about, and it is i feel. I will do a whole other podcast about my career and what it is to be black in Americana or black Americana or whatever the title is, but it's...
0: Is there a thing called black Americana? Is that a genre?
1: I don't think so. I don't think so. But it's like an identity thing. I think this is so interesting because if you're not white and you're playing folk or Americana, people are going to call you
0: black americana
1: black americana but it's like well (laughs) you can't that's that's not a genre there's no sound of there's no asian american folk there's just asian american people playing playing folk folk, right
0: (laughs) yeah so yeah so what am i like asian americana
1: yeah you know what we might be next to each other on the on the you know library shelf
0: (laughs) asian americana (laughs) east asian americana nice
1: east asian americana and black americana There's room for all of us.
0: And I think like a lot of... Okay, so like with the creation of the Emigrant EP, you know, and my Mm -hmm. like going into like fiddle styles, I think that's something where I felt more confident being like, you know what? I don't need to be from Kentucky or white or whatever to play fiddle music, you know, because I love it. No. You know, and it's like...
1: And you have just as much of a claim on it as anyone because... You're an American. You're a student of this music. You are like an active participant in the culture. But do you get like looks of surprise? I mean, I'm sure you don't now as someone that's been doing this. But like, did you ever get looks of surprise for like playing fiddle style as someone that doesn't look like, you know, the uh, stereotype?
0: (laughs) Well, I definitely wouldn't. um, I I definitely wouldn't have felt confident enough to put it on an album until recently, you know. But same with like the banjo player, Tall Tall Trees. Um, Mm hmm. He's like, he's from Long Island, you know, and he, he says he has like um, imposter syndrome where he's just like, I don't feel like I don't feel like I deserve to claim it. But, you know, I think people claiming their music as their own is just exclusionary. You know, I think they should just chill out and just let let people do what they want, you know, as far as art is concerned.
1: Where do you think you got like, do you what do you think was the shift where you like felt that confidence to to put out this EP? in in this style.
0: I mean, it's basically like this whole just understanding my identity, you know, which is this whole movie that I'm working on and it's like kind of it's about Japanese American identity. Like where is it? Where is mm-hmm. our place, you know, in society? And it's like it's in a bunch of different places, but it's it's never it's never been at the top, that's for sure, you know. And so it's like that's <laughs> that's I've, as I questioned this, I looked into music, you know, mm-hmm. cuz I like jazz and, you know, I like rap and stuff, but it's like I never felt like I would release a rap album or mm-hmm. even even jazz there yet. <laughs> no probably not uh, but even like jazz like a lot of you know black like a lot of black people like in new york you know they have like a mm-hmm. an attitude about like this is my music and it's like yeah it right. is sure and i felt that and, I, and how do i feel about it like i questioned myself a lot you know i don't know but they're also like musicians are also generally inclusive you know they're like they like yeah. kind of colorblind and most of the time
1: i think most musicians i mean most musicians i know i feel like you can tell if someone's about it or not like you can tell when someone is trying to dip into a culture that they know nothing about for clout Mm -hmm. versus someone who genuinely is paying tribute to the tradition
0: or if you can communicate in that language like jazz Mm -hmm. you know instantly you're talking you're conversing no one cares what you look like yeah so yeah you're right i think it's maybe it's like uh critics and stuff music critics are yeah they're kind of very (laughs) They have their own club, you know.
1: We'll so. we'll let them figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I have a lightning round for you if okay. your game. Yeah. Um, as before we before I let you go. The rules are you can skip a question, of course.
2: Okay.
1: Um, but you are under oath. Okay. It will be timed. Yep. And you can't ask for any clarification. Just go from the gut.
0: Okay, what's the prize?
1: The prize is the admiration of the, the basic folk audience and okay. my friendship.
0: Great. Okay. Sure. Sounds great. That's, okay, great. that's so valuable. That's very valuable.
1: Yeah. Okay, great. What is your favorite flower?
0: A daffodil.
1: What was the first song you learned on guitar?
0: Uh, Metallica. Ride Lightning.
1: What was... Oh, nice. What was the last movie you loved?
0: Uh, Back to the Future.
1: What What is your go-to Two. pre-show drink? <laughs> Oh Oh back to the future too. Just kidding, no. Uh, just kidding.
0: <laughs> um my, fi- my favorite drink before uh gin and tonic.
1: Gin and tonic, a classic. Yep. What was your most embarrassing quarantine activity?
0: Oh, um working out at home and then somebody seeing me through the window.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> who who is your favorite band to see in concert?
0: Uh, I like seeing all of Montreal there fun.
1: Very good. Um, what is the best Halloween costume you've ever done?
0: Um, I was a donkey. Uh, I was a smart ass. So it's was like a donkey with like nerd glasses.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah. We love a pun. I love um, puns. What is, one, what is one product you can't live without?
0: Oh, a uh, pillow. Is that a product?
1: Yeah, it's a product. Okay, It is made. Um, and finally, who is your celebrity crush?
0: Oh, like... Alice, what's her name? I love her so much. <laughs>
1: from Friends, what's her name? Wait, from Friends? I don't
0: know.
1: Alice, there's no Alice in Friends. Mar- like a character Mar- or an actor?
0: Oh, I was gonna say Jennifer Aniston. Sure, let's just say that. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: She's. I think she's America's crush.
0: Yeah, she's mom. Ma- yeah, sure.
1: Okay. Well, you have been a wonderful guest. <laughs> God, I was like um, so bad. Okay. No, you crushed it. You've won you've won the lightning round. Thank you so much for talking with me. Everyone, please go listen to the Emigrant EP. It is illuminating. Um, Kishibashi, you've been the best. I'm Lizzino. Thank you so
2: much.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. It's fun.
2: This week's episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople composes our music. Thanks again to Lizzie No for hosting on Basic Folk today. You can find Lizzie uh, on the internet. You can get her music wherever you find your music. Bandcamp is a great place to go find it. And her tour dates, etc. are all at her social media, which I will link in the show notes. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I am Cindy Howes. Thank you so much for listening. And please share this episode with a friend if you enjoyed it. And you can find all of the episodes of Basic Folk, including Lizzie's first episode where she interviewed the great Amethyst Kia at basicfolk.com or wherever you get podcasts. And we'll talk to you next time. Okay, bye.